Thanks for joining us for our podcast, Putting It Together. My name is Christina Clayton, one of the co-directors of the Northwest Mental Health Technology Transfer Center. We are part of a national network to disseminate and implement evidence-based practices for mental health into the field. We are coming to you from Seattle, Washington, and our Northwest region covers Alaska, Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. However, in this virtual world, we have connected with people from all over, and we are very grateful to connect with you today. One of our goals is to provide free training and technical assistance in mental health topics. And now we are offering a podcast because we were told there weren't many podcasts out these days. Just kidding. But truly, we hope you hear some useful information and or inspiration that helps you put it together when working in this challenging and amazing field we call mental health. You can find out more about us, including our live event calendar, free online courses, resource library, and newsletter sign up by visiting our website at mhttcnetwork.org backslash Northwest. Well, I'm so very excited to be with you here today. I'm sitting here with some colleagues from our department at the University of Washington, Akansha and Sarah. I'll let you introduce yourselves. We are collaborating and so fortunate to help support this mental health institute that you all are putting on and worked so hard to create. Can you just introduce yourselves a little bit before we get into some of the questions? Sure. So I'm Akansha Vaswani Bai. I am a psychologist and acting assistant professor at the University of Washington. And a lot of my work is located in the SPIRIT Lab, which stands for Supporting Psychosis Innovation Through Research, Implementation and Training. And my clinical practice is located at the Madison Clinic, which is a clinic that serves individuals living with HIV at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle. Thank you for that. And Sarah? Hello, I'm Sarah Fukray. I am a research coordinator at the Spirit Lab, working under Dr. Matswani Bai. I'm mostly working to support the Mental Health Institute. We launched their initiatives and born and raised in Seattle. So Seattle's home to me, came back from college and joined the University of Washington since then. Fantastic. Well, we're here to talk about some really important issues. And I think not everyone that's listening will be able to be part of this mental health institute. It is for Washington state providers, and there are three tracks, but the social justice and inclusion track is really paramount. And I think such progressive work, and I'm so humbled and excited to be part of this. Let's start at the beginning and how you got into the field. We know there are disparities and inequities in access to culturally and structurally responsive mental health care for individuals and from different communities or identities. So Akansha, what has been your journey into this mm. field and what led you to this particular part of the work? I started this work a little over a decade ago back in Bombay, where I was born. And I always like to say I entered the mental health field through disability work. Mm. So my first job as a baby therapist was at a place called Omi Child Development Center, where we worked in supporting families impacted by developmental disabilities. And I think that sort of has really framed my work in the mental health field, because even at that time, the idea of disability justice, thinking about how environments contribute to the way disabilities are experienced, how things like maternal mental health impacts child outcomes, thinking about access to childcare, thinking about supportive family systems, thinking about access to education, all of those issues and how they impact the trajectory of a diagnosed disability were conversations I was having at the beginning of my career. Mm. 
And so when I pivoted into working with more serious forms of mental health conditions, that has been the backdrop. I left India, did a master's in marriage and family therapy. And again, the ideas that I was introduced to were really focused on like examining systems Mm. and systems at a microcosmic level in terms of like family systems, but also broader systems where you go to school, where the community you live in, Mm -hmm. the nation that you live in, and how that impacts your lived experience, right? ideas from feminism, like the personal is political. And what does that mean? Mm. And then I went ahead to do a PhD, worked with Dr. Lisa Cosgrove. And we really in that lab, the lab was called the Bioethics and Human Rights Lab, uh, really looking at structures of psychology and psychiatry from a lens of institutional corruption. So thinking about Mm. how systems, again, impact what clinicians might do on the ground, you know, sort of put in a nutshell. So that's sort of been the backdrop of my work. And so when I had the opportunity to be the track lead for the Social Justice and Inclusion Institute, I was very excited to think about how to bring these ideas to practice for clinicians in um, Washington State and be in dialogue about them Mm. with people. Well, that's amazing. I think we don't always have people seeking to work on these aspects of the field, you know, and it's so hard. Like a lot of people come to the field, they want to help, they want to do good work, but to sort of look outside of that one-on-one meeting space is really important because it doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter who's in your family. It doesn't matter about those things. It's fantastic. Sarah, you recently joined the team. Is it a few weeks now? (laughs) Very busy few weeks. And you're working with Akansha and others. How did you join this field? How did you come to be working here? What are you hoping to do? And what have you noticed uh, so far in your career? I would say my introduction to systems and structures is one that's been personal. I think a lot of people are already introduced to systems, you know, as soon as they're born. I grew up in South Seattle and, you know, there are conversations I've had, you know, with my friends, you know, we drive up north and, oh, wow, suddenly there's so many more people walking their dogs and Mm. so many more parks over here, like compared to where we live. Mm. And so these are things that have always been a part of my life. And I had to take some time to really think about, you know, this isn't quite fair. And what's, what does this affect? How does this affect people's lives? How does it affect my life? It wasn't really until I got into college that I was introduced to a completely new environment that I really began to see that there were such differences in the way that we were living compared to you know, maybe more affluent communities mm. or better access to resources. And so that's where I started thinking, well, I am interested in, you know, mental health outcomes how different life experiences can impact your mental health, which is why I was really excited to join the Spirit Lab and specifically work with Mental Health Institute is because we are interested in those topics. Uh, We are interested in learning about people's lived experiences and how that relates to how they're treated in the behavioral health care system. I think something that I hear discussed quite a bit, but is still sorely lacking every equity conference I've attended in the past couple of months, talk about just the lack of providers, the lack of leadership, the lack of doctors, the lack of people who can make decisions coming from communities of color, from communities that haven't historically had those opportunities. And it's still a pretty disparate system where we're living in. So I'm just really glad that you all are trying to change it from within and want to still strive to do this because it's really, really important. 
We've mentioned this track, the social justice and inclusion track. I will probably say SJI for short, as we talk about this a lot today. But what were your hopes and intentions with this track? I know there's some history around what we're trying to do in Washington State and training providers, but mm-hmm. you had a huge role and the lead role in trying to develop this track. What were your hopes and thoughts about that? So I want to acknowledge that it's the first time we're launching this SJI track in Washington State. So I think my first intention is to learn, Mm. (laughs) learn what's effective for people, what seems to resonate for them, because I truly believe that our clinicians who have the boots on the ground, ears to their ground, are in a position to really know what our communities need. And so I think my first kind of intention is to learn from providers as they attend some of these sessions, what matters to them, what they think will make a difference to the communities they serve. And then with the hopes of thinking about how to incorporate some of these ideas in our mainstream settings, in our trainings, whether they're offered through MHTDC, through Spirit Lab, through our CBTP endeavors, through our involvement with first episode psychosis care, through our back teams. So I think the first step is learning. The first intention Mm -hmm. is learning. I think the other thing, recently I read an article by Tariq Yunus called The Model of Institutional Racism in Mental Health. And there was a line that Tariq, you know, in that article by Tariq, which said, no amount of training can reduce inequalities unless the causes of inequalities are understood and addressed. And that statement really gave me pause because I'm like, well, here I am, you know, developing this training institute. And it made me think, okay, no amount of training can reduce inequalities unless the causes of inequalities are understood and addressed. But how can we incorporate in our training conversations about causes of these inequalities so that practitioners and providers have a sense of unpacking and understanding systems of power, but also think about ways to address them whether in micro levels in conversation with people, but also think about us as mental health practitioners at a macro level. What is our responsibility? What what efforts and advocacy can we make? And I think knowing that each of us takes up these issues in different ways. You know, I remember being at a BIPOC community meeting a few months ago and somebody making a point that some of us contribute to change in small, quiet ways And some of us are louder and more public, but all of it matters. I truly believe that all of your efforts matter. I know people are doing this work already. I truly believe that there's many of us out there who care about these things. So I think the other intention is to acknowledge that, but also think about how we can begin understanding some of these causes of inequalities, kind of like Sarah was just saying, you saw the look on my face and podcast, so people can't see the look on my face, but like, (laughs) that's exactly it. Being curious about this unequal access to like green spaces and what that mm-hmm. is to mental health. I really hope that people who attend these sessions find that they provide them with a mechanism to deconstruct and unpack systems and structures that contribute to what we say are marginalization and oppression, mm. to examine cultures of power, but also find points of resistance to power mm. and how people are responding to it. That's some of my intentions. I'm just laughing because resistance, I think that's the only sentence where I would support using that term. Yeah, (laughs) you know, not with clients, not clients aren't resisting change. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, we need to resist these structures that are so racist and inequality and, you know, all of that. I also was just reflecting on in my past work hearing at very large downtown agency and always saw way more representation of communities of color in who we served. 
And I think we didn't at the beginning really talk about why is that? And and so I think some of that Mm -hmm. stuff that you're mentioning, Sarah, as well, people may or may not even have the books on the shelf in their mind about what those reasons could be. Why am I seeing this situation? Why am I seeing this person in front of me today? It didn't come from nowhere. And so I think it's really important that we think about this whole thing's out of order. (laughs) And so I know I used to talk about that in some trainings I would do with new staff. Who are we serving? And do we think about why that is? Why is it that more people experiencing homelessness are from communities of color, just at least in Seattle, than far more than the census would show as far as who lives there? So those are the kinds of things that it's not getting to the fixing of it, but you know, we can't just make snap judgments at the beginning. Why I think this person is here in front of me today. Sarah, do you have any reflections on kind of what we're hoping, what you're hoping to do with this track as you're starting to get to know the topics and what we're trying to do? I think as I'm entering into this mental health institute, as well as in the field, I've really just begun to see new opportunities in my career. I came into this not knowing that we could even incorporate these cultural practices, you know, Mm. in my undergraduate education. It's not really talked about. It's Mm -hmm. not really mentioned. These, you know, methods of creating collaborative, relationally oriented therapeutic relationships, not really talked about. And so when I joined and I'm just surrounded by these professionals who are making efforts to reach the very communities that I want, hope to serve in the future. It's exciting. It makes me hopeful and I'm aspiring to be a psychiatrist. It makes me hopeful that I can incorporate aspects of my culture, aspects of other clients' cultures into their treatment plans at more like context. You know, I come from an immigrant community, Ethiopian American. And so there are values in my culture that I've seen and I know help people with their mental health issues. And for me, I think it's valuable that we are creating a space where these cultures can be explored and that we can really learn from communities of color that have already developed so many amazing ways of coping with these struggles structural systems. It's exciting. I think that's the only way to say it's it's exciting. That's fantastic. Well, the other thing I was thinking about is when I said, what are you hoping to do with this track, Akansha? And you said, well, I'm hoping to learn. And right off the bat, that's not the traditional approach, right? (laughs) If you were in the mainstream psychiatry, psychology Mm -hmm. mindset, it's like, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to show you because I'm the expert. I'm in my ivory tower. I have the book knowledge. Let me school you on how this whole Mm -hmm. mental health thing works. But that's the opposite of what you said. And I love that because I think that's really huge that we do have that perspective. We're already kind of missing the boat. I'm not surprised at all that you said that, but really pleased that like, I just want to learn and understand. That's just a much more community-minded, collaborative way of going about this. And I think you're going to learn so much. I think we all will about who comes to these sessions, what kind of questions come up for providers. So let's dig into what some of these terms mean, because I think various people have various exposure to these topics. And Sarah, you just went to school not that long ago. I purposely sought things like this back in my day, but I am still on the journey. I am still learning every day. And I know we've talked about this outside of today's podcast, but as a white cisgendered woman, I find it hugely important that I keep showing up because I want to keep learning. I want to keep trying to better understand things myself. Someone sort of pointed out like it's not up to communities of color to end racism or fix these societal problems. And I think that may be a fear sometimes in people like, well, I don't even know where to start. I don't know what some of these terms mean. I am afraid to make a mistake. All those things I'm sure we'll get into. But let's talk about what does one mean or what do you mean with the term social justice and inclusion? 
So I think really simply it's a kind of, in some ways, an ideological position, right? Where we're thinking about creating a society in which people, no matter what their background, have equitable and sustainable access to power and resources in our in our communities. And I think that there are different industries, not only the helping profession, that think about how to incorporate these ways of thinking or these ideologies and into their systems, into their structures. And I think specifically for mental health providers, I do think it is a value that drives people to the field. I think about the work that we do as part of Spirit Lab and MHGDC, I think it is one of our driving values to improve mm. equitable access to individuals with serious mental illness who tend to be the most marginalized in our communities. There's a lot of misinformation and stigmatizing ideas about these communities, and we're really committed to change that, to change mm -hmm. the story about individuals often with who are experiencing psychosis, for instance, in mm -hmm. our little place in the world. Um, so I, I do think it's a value that drives a lot of people to the field. And I think I've had the fortune of meeting many practitioners, researchers, policymakers, activists, advocates who are just so keenly aware of how mental health concerns or disabilities puts people in positions where their rights are marginalized and want to respond to that. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's one way that I think about social justice and inclusion and in mental health. You know, I know that there are many ways that we can talk about this, mm -hmm. but I think that may be just kind of a good way to talk about it in the yeah. context of this podcast. And also, and I won't do it justice, I won't even try to summarize, but someone in our network gave our, so I've been part of a network work group within our MHTTC family, if you will, on culturally responsiveness and building health equity. And someone who leads one of the other regional centers just gave, it was about 90 minutes of just the history of racism in the mental mm -hmm. health field and where the origins of mental health even came from. Yeah. You know, I think no one's questioning that there are illnesses and care that is needed. However, that construct that you're sort of referencing and, you know, what you mentioned, Sarah, I didn't even know I could pursue parts of the field because why would you, if you weren't exposed, you didn't even know they existed. And so I think not seeing people, whether it's like you or just not like the traditional folks that are in the academic world, so important, right? Like, so having visibility and having access to stimulate those ideas versus, you know, you went and got a really nice degree, I'm sure, but then you're like, whoa, this is blowing my mind. This is, I didn't know I could pursue that. What does that mean to you, uh, Sarah, like social justice and inclusion? I think what it means to me is everyone feeling that they are respected for who they are, regardless of their background, identity, income, sexual orientation. You know, we know historically that people of color have been neglected by our healthcare system. We know that depending on, you know, your accent or how you present yourself, the way you're treated in the healthcare system, completely different from someone who's wealthy and speaks with an English accent. So to me, social justice and inclusion in the context of the healthcare system is everyone being treated with the respect that they deserve, being treated as a human being as they are. What I also hear in what we're discussing which I think has tended to be part of the field is like an add-on like, oh, let's tack this on. And also there's like a cultural thing, but don't forget the cultural thing, but it, mm. it's not leading with that. It's not starting from that place because that is the problem when we try to fold it into what is not necessarily a equitable structure or approach, tack on that cultural element, if you will, to a therapy or to is like, well, we need to start from how is this even viewed? How does this person even understand? 
understand what's going on, what family and other community things are at play here that we need to really first just make that connection before we go with our usual thing and they go, oh yeah, then there's there's that mm-hmm. too. It's like, Christina, like culture is not the add-on thing, like culture and structure is the thing, uh-huh. right? Um, mm-hmm. So how are we incorporating that into whatever we bring to the field, mm-hmm. right? Whatever we mm-hmm. bring in terms of like our cherished frameworks of working, you know, whether it's CBT or DBT or solution-focused therapy or... Mm-hmm. Let's talk about there are some struggles and and that is real. It is at play right now in most probably clinical settings. These topics are very complex. We know our helping professional fields have not really attended to these and have done real damage. I mean, we aren't even getting into all of that, but we keep striving to do better. What have you noticed since you've been learning about this, finding it in your own work, finding it in your own life, being inspired by what probably were, I think in your case, Sarah, these aha moments that were not positive (laughs) to go, oh, wait a second. I didn't realize what we were suffering with because I didn't even know what the other neighborhoods had, just for an example, like you're saying. What have you noticed or observed about the field, about clinical settings, about providers? Like, what are some of the difficulties? Why is this hard to talk about? What are some of the barriers? I don't fault people completely because our systems and educational systems have not done it justice. However, what have you noticed when you're out there working with folks, training, Mm -hmm. co-practicing in school, any reflections on what you've noticed? There are kind of things that get in the way. You know, I have some I have some guesses about this, but I want I want to start my guesses with an acknowledgement. I think our mental health and behavioral health providers are just managing a lot right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there's been talking about structures and systems. I think there's more and more recognition that behavioral health care is underfunded, underappreciated and stigmatized. Right? Definitely. The, and the pandemic has only intensified this unmet need for services, has widened inequities that already existed. It made cracks, large ravines, mm-hmm. right? So it's made it even more difficult for people to access behavioral healthcare. And it has made our healthcare workers work under more challenging conditions. And they're being asked to do more and more without corresponding increase in structures that support that demand. So I want to say that Vicky Reynolds is a practitioner in Canada who I respect a lot. And I remember her saying in a training, our clients don't burn us out the systems do, mm-hmm. you know, no client is coming up and trying to set me into flames or anything like that. But it, it's, yeah. it's a stressed out systems. And that was such a huge shift for me. Like, oh my gosh, if I'm in this position, you know, of leadership or being able to form these trainings, how am I attending to some of those structures that contribute to these feelings of burnout, right? How can I make people's jobs easier rather than harder? So I just want to acknowledge that. And so I think my first guest kind of ties into that, that people have so much else to do, so much paperwork, so much red tape to even be able to sit down with people. And they might wonder, how can I begin even addressing societal inequities and injustice? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't have the power authority to fix things like racism or sexism or homophobia. And, you know, some providers might think it's not even the right place. There's this idea, I think, and some of those ideas come from our professional training. You heard Sarah just say that she went through a whole undergrad where a lot of times these things weren't even acknowledged. So I think Mm -hmm. a lot of our educational structures might give us implicit or explicit ideas about don't go there, Mm -hmm. right? So I think that that many of us come into the field with those constructions about what it means to even be a professional. Mm -hmm. I want to acknowledge that. 
Well, and Sarah, we don't need names or anything, but you know, when you're going through your undergraduate training, I mean, now that you are exposed to some of these topics, did you notice then, or are you reflecting now on some challenges that you would have found to be able to have this type of experience, this kind of exposure to these topics from your, you know, recent educational pursuit? Sure. I think some of the courses I took specifically addressed those issues. Yeah. I sought out those courses and they were yeah. typically professors of color who have experience in the field. Yeah. So they were comfortable talking about yeah. you know, structural inequality, practices, culturally competent practices. Um, amazing professor I had, she was a clinical psychologist and the class was neuroscience of trauma. Mm. And she, um, a lot of her lectures or things she talked about included um, the experiences of people of color and clients that she had. Mm who didn't come from a wealthy background. And so she was comfortable navigating those types of conversations. But then I also had courses within the psychology department that were not taught by professors of color, not taught by professors who were comfortable talking about these issues. So when it did come up, they would kind of bring it up like, yeah, racial inequality, and then like move it on quickly before mm -hmm. anyone can raise their hand mm -hmm. and debate mm -hmm. them on it. And I understand why, because you're talking to students who may come from diverse backgrounds and you're scared to be challenged. You're scared to say the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. You're scared to offend anyone, you know, in those classes, which was a majority of them. Those conversations weren't really had. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about this, the the track that you have put together just brings up so many, and I try to learn about this stuff and I am blown away at the topics that you're bringing to this track. You have wonderful presenters, you're doing some of them, speaking about a lot of powerful topics. I do think sometimes, even if we had gone to school, even if we sought out some of these topics, this stuff is progressive. It, you know, there are circles I imagine where, you know, I've, I've heard you talk about that, Akancha. You, you have sought out communities of professionals, of color, of women, of people from different communities, so you can have those connections. And if we didn't have that or didn't learn about it, some of these terms, my thought is that I don't exactly know how to define them. I am very excited about them, but I wonder if we maybe can talk about what do these terms mean? The light bulb goes off when you hear that and you suddenly see things in a different way. So let's dive into some of these so we can talk through them. It's stated liberatory ideas and embodied mm -hmm. practices. What mm -hmm. does that mean? So that's, I think you're referring to a, you know, a workshop on October 27th mm -hmm. uh, by Mariami Gonzalez and Cleopatra Burfordson. I'm really excited for that one as well, because my guess is that they're going to be bringing in pedagogical and knowledge ideas from Latin America, mm. thinking about ideas from that part of the world and mm. how can that influence our psychology practices in the United States? Because liberation psychology came from that part of the world. Mm. And so alluding to what Sarah was saying earlier, how do we consult other communities, community knowledges about how to address or eliminate these ideas, sorry, racist practices at the individual, institutional and structural levels? And I think uh, Cleopatra brings in her background in movement-based therapies to the work. So it's also thinking about how do we bring creativity to our work yeah. instead of just dialogical approaches or just, mm -hmm. you know, when I say dialogical, only based on talking, how do we bring in mm -hmm. some other ideas? So I'm really excited about how to bring in 
the body, how to bring in creative practices more mm. in work with people. So I think that that's an idea that will be addressed in, on October 27th. That would be great. Akansha, can you talk a little bit about what folks that are fortunate enough to be able to participate in these trainings, but I think the topics are so wide reaching, you know, mm-hmm. can you talk about some of the ideas that presenters will be talking about and knowing that these are such progressive terms and ideas and that not everyone's getting this in their training. Can you just share some of those, those ideas that, that folks will get to hear about and Sure. There's so much that I'm excited about. And, you know, the first one, so we kick off starting tomorrow, Charlie Lang is going to talk a lot about how the construct and system of heterosexism impacts LGBTQ health. And I love the quote that he has in one of his handouts, and it says, by, by Audre Lorde, and it says, the heterosexism is the belief in the inherent superiority of one pattern of loving over all others, and therefore it's right dominance and like kind of how that trickles down into people who identify as LGBTQ, how it identifies into like their own identity and meaning making and how we can unpack that with people. So I think he will really kind of introduce us to like a mode of inquiry that can help practitioners examine and challenge some taken for granted assumptions and ideas that impact people's mental health. And then I'm also really excited about bringing the power threat meaning framework to the United States. Mm, Um, So this one is going to be presented by our UK-based partners, Jan Bostock and Ray Middleton. And the power threat meaning framework is an alternative to the DSM or a more dominant biomedical understanding of distress. So They're really going to speak about a method of inquiry where you can talk to people about understanding the distress they experience as understandable and meaningful response given their life circumstances, given the context of their life. So they really give you a system to partner with people who consult you to answer the question, what happened to me rather than what is wrong with me? And like Charlie's session, I think the framework will help people understand how different kinds of power, right? Relational power, legal power. Mm -hmm. coercive power, structural power, racism operate in their lives and how this power impacted their sense of safety or well-being and what they needed to do to survive. And now how can they respond to that a little differently or make make meaning of it? Let me pause for just a second. I mean, it's making me think of that exercise, unpacking your Mm -hmm. privileged backpack and that you don't even notice Mm-hmm. because it's where you've been the entire time. And so right. it's so hard. I mean, I know the, a lot of these terms and ideas may be uh, disconcerting for people. They may not understand what some of these terms mean, but that's all the more reason to listen and come if you can. And we hope to add more of these kinds of topics to our offerings as a wider regional center. But it's so important that you know we don't get scared off by terms we don't know because they really mean some pretty powerful things. And you know, I think they'll all resonate when you actually hear them or, or do some more research or pursue some other avenues of educating yourself because it's not coming in the regular traditional yeah. route. So I just want to reflect on that, but please keep going. I also think about, I'll say kind of a short story about, I was reflecting with my partner the other day about now with YouTube and Spotify, right? We can listen to music from like anywhere in the world. And that's pretty amazing, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Like you can hear these songs that are uh, that you would never otherwise have access to. And I think about that often in our, in our field about a lot of times ideas from the so-called global north or the west were exported out 
But what if, what if we traffic differently? What if we have an exchange of ideas? And now mm-hmm. that's possible. It opens up our world in a different way. It's kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, Sarah was saying like, oh, wow, there's this whole kind of like different way of being that mm-hmm. I can learn from. So I think that that's part of it as well. I'm really hoping that some of the things that people get from these workshops and I'm thinking specifically about Marcella's workshop on November 18th about the role of the mental health practitioner and decolonial practices because she will be sharing concepts from Caribbean and Latin American knowledge systems that not you know that we haven't had a lot of access to and thinking about how we can utilize those ideas and practice context here in the United States so mm-hmm. it helps us kind of consider okay what are eurocentric practices And what are some racist ideas and systems and how they've impacted our work? And what are some of these other other ways of being and how can we think about how we want to be with our clients based on this kind of two-way knowledge production process? Yeah. Coursera, people can't see you nodding a lot. Is there anything on your mind as a conscious describing some of these ideas that that are resonating with you? I think I just really appreciated how she mentioned, you know, we could sort of flip the direction of culture that's being exported. And, you know, like she said, growing up in the U.S., that's we're mostly exposed to Eurocentric ideas. And Mm -hmm. going through this training institute, we're sort of flipping the script. We're Mm -hmm. exposing different cultures and different ways of treating mental health, mental illness. And Mm -hmm. it's just exciting. Yeah, it's a virtual world for sure. And there's good and bad, you know, to all of these things, but to really just have access to teaching and learning and people didn't have maybe before because, you know, not everyone has the resources to fly all over the world and see some amazing presenter. And it's really great that, you know, you're making those connections. Well, and I think we know that it's possible. Look at how mindfulness has taken off, right? It's based <laughs> yeah. on Eastern traditions yeah. and and look at yoga. It's so interesting to me to see that part of my <sighs> culture being taken up in many different ways. I think I really am interested in uh, two-way street of knowledge production mm-hmm. and thinking about how we can all learn from each other. Here's a final question that mm-hmm. is just on my mind. What will success look like with this track? Now, again, that doesn't mean it's the same for every person. It doesn't mean it's one universal and exclusive successful metric. I'd mean in yeah. your experience, from your perspective, and what will people experience? What will you see? What will you experience? What will the field experience? I think one metric of success is that people feel like these ideas and practices are demystified and within their reach. Mm. And the other thing I think that Sarah was alluding to in something she had shared is to not be afraid, Mm. to be okay with discomfort, to lean into that fear, because I think when fear is present, we might not take risks or do things that even things that we might want to do because Mm -hmm. we're scared of being judged, we're scared of being canceled, we're scared. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that it motivates, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that people felt that these ideas were more accessible to them, depending on, again, where people's identities and social locations are. I want, you know, I know that a lot of my fellow clinicians of color are already doing this work. I want Mm -hmm. them to feel more empowered to speak up Mm -hmm. in places where they feel like they've been silenced. I know that there are so many white identifying clinicians like yourself, Mm -hmm. Christina, who want to do some of this work, but maybe fear holds them back. Maybe Mm -hmm. they feel like they can't speak up for whatever reason, right? Mm -hmm. So I think a demystification, a fear reduction, and a feeling of more accessibility to 
employ some of these ideas in, in your work and truly mm-hmm. partner with people in more collaborative and relational ways. And mm-hmm. kind of, I love what Sarah said about we all have a right, you know, this is a, a right to yeah. good mental health. It's a basic human right. Yeah. And so how do we actualize that? That's kind of what I hope are you hoping, Sarah? I know you've been intimately involved in all the details, logistics, and the, all these things. What will success feel like to you after this is done? You know, cultural competence, learning about cultural identities, learning about cultural practices, social justice work. You're not going to be an expert on that after one training mm. or a couple trainings. It's <laughs> it's a lifelong pursuit. It's a learning process that everyone, you know, people of color, you know, white people, everyone has to take on this, you know, responsibility of learning about different cultures, learning about the structural inequities present. And my hope would be through this institute is people begin developing that learning process, begin generating interest in different communities and how they treat mental illness developing an interest in, you know, what are the systems at play? What are people experiencing? What are my clients dealing with on a day-to-day basis? And how can I make their experience at my office a more comfortable one, a more safe one, Mm -hmm. one where they're more better able to connect with their clinician because they've taken on that personal responsibility of meeting them where they're at. That's my hope. Well, I already know you've succeeded because A, it's happening and B, people are going to really enjoy it. I think C, I am very, very grateful that you and I connected Akansha on kind of an unrelated note. And then you let Mm -hmm. us come and try to be part of this because that's really important to me and it's important to our center. I'm very excited that you've joined the team, Sarah. So that's a success. And that hopefully, like you said, we'll kind of peel back some of the curtains that are on these really important ideas that maybe people haven't experienced before. And we'll just keep them on their journey as we were kind of talking about before that, like you said, Sarah, it's not over because you took a training or you checked a box and you attended some webinar and now I'm an expert. Like, no, nobody thinks that. I'm just so excited that we have some of this material that we're getting more visibility. And so that's, that's already very successful in my mind. And I'm personally very grateful to be part of it. Thank you so much for your time. It's really important stuff. So look forward thanks, to um, for the. I just want to say thanks for the invitation, Christina. I'm going to attend a workshop this weekend about questions that I wish I'd been asked, but all those stories gone untold, right? Mm. For the questions that I wish I I'd been asked. And I really want to thank you for saying, hey, Akansha, can you please answer these questions? And I am so excited that Sarah said yes to joining us in in this particular interview, because I think her perspectives are so valuable and meaningful to me. And I'm just so lucky that I, you know, I get to work with her. And thank you both. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, everybody, for listening and for your time today, Akansha and Sarah. Thank you so much. You can find resources related to the episode in our show notes, so be sure to check those out. Learn more about us by visiting our website at mhttcnetwork.org backslash Northwest. You can also follow us on social media at NWMHTTC. This broadcast is brought to you by the Northwest MHTTC, which is funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA. However, the content does not necessarily reflect the views of SAMHSA. Thank you so much for listening. We look forward to connecting with you again so we can keep putting it together. Take care.